Okay, let's open the Word of God to Acts 9. Acts 9.23 says, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he'd come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and distributed against the Hellenists. Sorry, spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit had multiplied. If you haven't been with us, we're working our way through the book of Acts. We're currently, obviously, in chapter 9, following the conversion of Saul on the road to Damascus. So Saul has this amazing experience confronted by the, the risen Christ. He is scared witless. He is left blinded and told to rise and enter the city and there he would be told what to do. Now Paul rose, did exactly what he was told to do. For three days he sat in the dark reflecting on his own misguided zeal. And then Ananias came to him. Ananias, a, a godly, devout observer of the law and a follower of Jesus, sent to Saul to pray for him, to heal him through the power of God, of his blindness, and to tell him that he was God's chosen instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So I want you to notice a couple of things. Saul wasted no time. Saul wasted no time in obeying. Immediately, he did what he was told to do. Immediately, he made use of the God-given opportunity before him. Remember, he had a... a letter from the high priest in Jerusalem giving him access to, scholars believe, 30 to 40 synagogues in Damascus. Now, if, you, if we have a look at what Saul wrote later to the Galatians, we get a little, more, little bit more information about what was happening for him at this time. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul's letter to the Galatians, he said, But when he who had set me apart, before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, this is not the Arabia on our current maps. This is not the Arabian Peninsula that we're familiar with today. Saul is referring here to the Arabian Desert just outside Damascus, the kingdom of the Nabataeans. Saul was based in Damascus. And you remember Damascus was an oasis on the edge of the desert. So it seemed that he went in and out of there. He's based there, but for a period of about three years, it seemed that he used that desert as a, a way of just going out and walking with God in the wilderness. Then he returned to preach and argue with the Jews living in Damascus. Then in verse 18 of his letter to the Galatians, he says, then after three years, 
I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. Remember, Cephas is Peter. And remained with him 15 days. So it would seem that the majority of the Jews living in Damascus, worshipping in one of the 40 or so synagogues there, did not respond to Paul's message. Even though Luke says he proved that Jesus is the Son of God to them, they rejected the gospel and they actually tried to kill him. So Saul escaped Damascus, being lowered by his friends from a, a window in the wall, down the side of the wall in a basket. He then made his way to Jerusalem and the believers there were obviously still very wary of him. Remember the name Saul must have still been very raw to them. Can you imagine being a believer in Jerusalem knowing that this guy, this Saul, had persecuted the way and maybe your brother or your father, your uncle, had been put to death because of him. It would have been very raw for them. And I imagine that's probably why he seemed to spend his time with the leaders, Peter, James and John, rather than with the whole church as a whole. What is clear is that it didn't take long before Saul's life was in very real danger again. He was just doing what the Lord had told him to do, preaching the good news about Jesus. But Acts 9.29 says the Jews were seeking to kill him. That wouldn't be very nice, would it? I mean, it's one thing to know people don't like you. But it'd be another thing to know that they were... I mean, it would be just incredibly stressful to have people actively seeking to kill you. I mean, clearly there are times when the Holy Spirit will lead you into dangerous situations. And in those times, you really must rely on his strength and his strength alone to keep you safe. There will be other times when the Lord will call you to clear out, to just get out of there. And that is exactly what happened with Saul. The brothers, presumably that meant Peter, James and John, that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they took Saul down to Caesarea on the coast, put him on a ship and sent him home to Tarsus. Now, Tarsus is quite a long way from Jerusalem. It's located on a major trade route across Asia Minor on the way to Greece and Rome. I mean, Tarsus really is a great spot for the apostle to the Gentiles to be based, to be located. I mean, the Lord really does know what he's doing, doesn't he? Well, for the next eight years, Saul preached the gospel amongst these, uh, those with whom he'd grown up. And we don't really hear much about him for a, a couple of chapters in Acts until chapter 11, when Barnabas went and found him there after about eight years, and they did this teaching mission for the, the whole year together. So Luke, the writer of Acts, finishes this little introductory section about Saul, story of his conversion, with these couple of sentences about the early church. Now, these, these few words are very easy for us to skim over, as I did when I read them to you a moment ago. It's very easy for us to skim over them. Let's read them again. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. Do you see how the church is in fact doing what Jesus told them to do? That they would spread out from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And that is exactly what is happening. He says, and then he says, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. And walking 
in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, it sounds a little bit like a religious person, doesn't it? You know, a churchy kind of person finishing off a a public prayer, doesn't it? And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, we say, Amen. It's got that ring about it, doesn't it? You know, in my preparation this week, I did a careful word study of each of the original Greek words which Luke chose to use in these closing remarks. Before we move on to what the Lord was doing in and through the Apostle Peter, this morning I want to share with you some of what I discovered because I have to tell you I found it somewhat unsettling. So the church had peace. church had peace. Following a time of great distress, great distress, a great trial. Remember the early church had lived through that first great wave of persecution. It was this very trial which had scattered them, scattered them, drove them out of their comfort zone, out of the comforts of Jerusalem. I mean, people were being executed. Stephen, this this lovely young man in the church, was put to death. They they stoned him to death. And great fear broke out and they scattered. But now it seems the Lord was giving them, for a time, a break. You see, the, the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, gave his people a time of renewal and refreshment. They experienced peace and they were being built up. Sounds good, doesn't it? Then he says, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So let's break that apart together. And walking. Starts off, and walking. Now the Greek word used here means they continued on the journey which they had already begun. The Greek word is puya amahi. Let's say that together. Puya amahi. Puya amahi. That's what, it, what it, the, the word they, they chose to use. Luke, Luke uses this word. Now, in English, we tend to translate that as walk. The NIV uses live. But in Greek, its meaning is much fuller than that. There, there is a sense that one leaves one's normal life to do this walk, this puya amahi, this, this journey. You know, this is so important for us to take hold of this, this whole idea that's Everything that is wrapped up in this word, this puya amahi. See, your life as a Christ follower is not to be one where you occasionally bump into Jesus at a party or here on Sundays or as you're walking up and down the aisles in the supermarket. Jesus! No long time, no see, mate. How are you? What have you been up to? I haven't seen you around for ages. Gee, you're looking good. Lost a bit of weight? Mate, you're looking buff. You've been going to the gym or something. Hey, we'll catch up sometime. See ya. That is not how you pull your amahi with Jesus. That is not a journey with someone. You see, when you journey with someone, you actually share a common story. You don't need to catch up because you're already caught up. You don't, you know exactly what's going on because you're there. You're already doing it together. Do you get the image? As they walked, as they continued on the journey on the Puyamahi with Jesus, not separately but together with Jesus, 
And then Luke uses a surprising expression. He says, in the fear of the Lord. In the fear of the Lord. Now, I remember some years ago having a conversation with Keith Ham about this, this passage. And he, he straight away just said, yeah, no, no, many people say that that really means in the awe of the Lord. That they walked in the awe of the Lord. And we said, hang on a minute, let, let's just look this up. Let's, let's check what the, the Greek word is. And just to see, is it, is it awe? Anyway, we looked it up and the word is phobos. It's actually the root word of our English word, phobia. Okay? And as we looked up the meaning of the word, we were surprised to discover that it actually means fear. It actually means dread. It actually means terror. And we started talking together about what it is like to live in terror. Now, just for a moment, I want you to try to remember a time in your life when you experienced true terror. Have you ever had one of those moments? As I reflected on it, I kind of thought, gee, I think I've had quite a few. Yeah, I remember one day when I was commuting to Sydney. You know when you go through Summersby, you've got carry-on on the left there, you cross that bridge... You know where I am? You're about to head down the Mooney Mooney Creek Bridge. I'm going along there and I was in a little, a little Daihatsu charade. That's what I was driving up and down to Sydney in. Very cheap, only three cylinders. It literally ran on the smell of a, an oily rag. But I'm, you know, going along at 110 in this tiny little car and I've got a semi-trailer so close behind me that all I can see is the grill. You, you know, when you're looking out the back window, you're looking in the mirror, and you're just thinking, oh, heck, I'm going to stop a lot faster than he's going to stop. There's like 50 tonne there, and he's so close behind me. And I guess because all of my attention was on what's going on behind me, as I came over the hill, the traffic, there was just a sea of red lights. The traffic was stopped all the way up the other side and all the way back up the hill. And in those seconds, as I braked heavily, I could not imagine how that truck would not annihilate me and the next 10 cars in front of it. And as I braked heavily, I found myself screaming, No! And the truck went down the left-hand side on the verge and stopped maybe 200 metres down the hill. I don't know how he got around me. But that for me was a moment of absolute terror. You know, there's another time, and I'm, I know I've told you this story before, but it kind of... It's got a good point. There was another time when, and we've got a photo here of, if you just click once more, I think, Gary. Yeah, when Sean Riley and Keith and Tim and I, remember this, mate, we went out to Nunes and we climbed this mountain. There are a few mountains out there. Some of them have tracks up them. This is one of the ones that don't have a track. 
national parks don't want you climbing this, this thing. Anyway, we climbed up here and we go up there and the only rope we had was that rope that's around my chest there. And we had some gear, some protection. But that rope's 25 metres, okay? And a lot of the falls up there, the cliffs are well over 100 metres. In fact, if you look at the data, they're, they're more like 300 metres, some of the falls. I mean, it's just huge. And so we come up through this section and I've got to tell you, I don't cope with heights terribly well. There's a few spots on that climb where you get to a point where like, I can barely move because if I do anything wrong here, if anything goes wrong, I'm going to free fall for a long way before I hit anything. It's just, it's really scary. Do you remember it, Tim? Yeah, Tim's just sitting there. <laughs> Your hand's sweating? <laughs> Mine are. Anyway, we get up there, we climb to the top of this thing and on the way back down, there's this spot where you really need protection coming back down. And so I thought, well, I'll climb down to this tree, tie myself to the tree, and then I'll get them to put the rope on and they can come down to me and I'll protect them on the, the next bit down. Now, I've been up this mountain quite a few times with Boyd's Brigade and every time I go up there, I say to myself, I am never doing this ever. This is so stupid. So anyway, I'm standing there and I know that there's this bull ant nest that lives at this tree. So I, I'm just fearful that I'm going to disturb the ants and I'm fearful because it's so high. Anyway, I thought Keith was a bit anxious. So I said, come on, mate, you, you go first. So he gets down to me and he says, are you okay, mate? And I went, no, and I, I'm feeling really sick. And he goes, what, you're a bit sick in the tummy, mate? And I went, no, I'm just really afraid. I'm just terrified. And he goes, oh, maybe I should be afraid too. Should I be afraid? <laughs> and I just went, now would be a good time for you to be afraid. He goes, oh, okay, okay, okay. Oh. That situation pretty ap accurately represents, I think, where many Christians are at. Many Christians are kind of like Keith was that day. The truth is they're in a very dangerous place, walking with the King, walking with the Lord, yet they take it so lightly, just like Keith did that day. Just for a few moments, he hadn't really looked at where he was and I don't think he'd really thought about what would happen if it all went wrong. I was in a different place because I'd been up there before. That day I was full of dread, terror and fear. And I did not feel safe and secure. And if you're wondering what happened with the bull ants, yes, by the time Tim and Sean came down, that ant nest was fully active. And I was being nipped, I've got to tell you. Anyway, Keith was not, in a sense, walking in the fear of the situation. And I find it very disconcerting to discover that Luke chose to say that the early church walked in the fear, the terror of the Lord. And he didn't just mean awe and wonder. 
See, it would appear they carefully watched every step, every word, every thought, every look, every desire, every action, just as one would if Jesus really was with us. Just as one would if he really was alive, just as one would if he really was the king. I find it very disconcerting because maybe the truth is I don't walk with Jesus in fear and terror and dread as maybe I should. Maybe I just don't really believe that Jesus is with me 24-7. Yet when we look at a psalm like this one, Psalm 121, we discover that it says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. It's like a shadow. The maybe the problem is that we like the idea of the Lord watching over us day and night. We like the idea of him keeping us safe. But we really don't like his presence all the time. Or maybe we just don't believe he's paying attention. You know, the author, well-known author and preacher John Ortberg says, when you speak in relation to another person, you have three categories. You either speak directly to the person, you speak in front of the person, or you speak in the absence of the person. In the third category, when we speak in the absence of a person, I might be talking about you or I might be talking about something else, but your presence is not impacting what I say at the time. Because you're not there. We all recognise that we usually speak a little differently about a person in their absence than we do in their presence. In fact, if you walk into a room, if you walk into a room with a group of people and they all suddenly go quiet, you immediately think, they were speaking about me. They were saying something about me and I don't know whether they want to repeat it in front of me. And of course, when we're in the presence of a particularly powerful person, a, a very impressive or famous person, it can become very difficult for us to act normally or to speak at all. We often say the most silly things. And later on, we can't believe we could have been so moronic. I remember once going into the opera house to, to meet Dad. I think I was having a trumpet lesson or something in there. And Dad comes wandering around down the steps to meet me with Luciano Pavarotti. And I'm there going, What? And I just had nothing to say. Dad introduced me and I had a, a drink in my hand and I remember he just went, what have you got there? A drink. And he went, oh. And he grabbed it, went, tuk, 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 tuk. And he went, never ever give me a drink. <laughs> I'll take it. And I was, I didn't have anything to say. I felt so stupid afterwards. Yeah, when it comes to God, we can speak to God and we can speak in the presence of God, but we can never actually speak in the absence of God. But for some reason, God makes it possible for us to feel as though we can. John Ortberg, in remembering his Bible college days, recalls a little game the students used to play in the cafeteria. He said they'd all have to gather for lunch and they'd all sit down at the tables and they'd all go like this. And they, put, they sit there with a thumb up. And the last person to put their thumb up 
had to say grace, had to pray. He said, I always thought it was so funny because we'd all sit there. I don't want to talk to God. I don't want to pray. And then whoever was the sucker with their last one with their thumb up would go, dear God, thank you for being with us. Thank you for this food. Thank you for this time we're going to share together. We love you so much. Amen. It's almost as though God's waiting around. Oh, someone's praying. (laughs) I'll wake up and run over and answer the phone. It's not, it doesn't work like that. He's there all the time. You know, when I was the youth pastor here, I took a group of our kids, some of you may have been there, to this campsite that had this high ropes course. I don't know if you've ever been on one of those things. They're a lot of fun, but you end up a long way above the ground and it can be very, very scary. Anyway, this particular course didn't start off high. It started off really low. And so you're making your way up through this course and you eventually find yourself really high, high up. Anyway, right towards the end, you have to step off this wire and you're way up in a gum tree. And you've got to step off this wire onto this tiny little platform. It was like about that big. But I found that I had to, I had to, I was bending down, I had to stand up on this platform way up in this tree in order to grab this flying fox. Now, I want to show you how easily I can do that. See, I can just go, oh, like that. Oh, I can just keep doing up and down. As easy as pie. But I've got to tell you, up in that tree, it looked more like this. Anyway, to my... Great disbelief. Someone actually took a photo of me <laughs> at this exact moment. That is me after I had stood, stood up and grabbed the thing. You see, the difference between standing here at a height of about four inches, 100 mil, and that was the context. You see, the context matters, doesn't it? The context is everything. Because the context in that moment filled me with fear and terror and dread. And that made all the difference. Let me just ask you this morning, what is your context? What is your context? If you're a Christian... If you're a Christ follower, everything has changed for you. Nothing will ever be the same again. You see, your context is forever changed because the context for you is now one where you walk, you journey with, you live with the king. And that context should change everything. It should change the way you speak. It should change the way you relate to others, the way you behave, the way you pray, the way you spend, the way you work, the way you love, the way you serve. It should change the way you do absolutely everything. Is that how you see your life? Do you see your life as one where you are travelling through this place, which is not our true home, travelling for a time with the king? The lover of your soul, yes, but nonetheless, the king.
Do you see your life as one lived in the very presence of Jesus, the one who fills every inch of his cosmos, the one who sees and hears everything, the one who loves you like a brother, but yet is still your king? Is that how you see your life? Because it would appear that that's exactly how the early church understood things to be. For for some reason, God makes us feel as though we can exist without his presence. Maybe that's because he wants us heart and soul, not because we feel as though we're being monitored, not just because we're being watched. You see, I think God knows that if he made his presence acutely felt, if we could see him, hear him every moment of the day, Many of us would be like those who drive very differently when there's a blue and white car beside them. Have you ever noticed that? The behaviour of drivers around a police vehicle is exemplary. Road rage disappears. Everyone indicates, don't they? Everyone drives at the speed limit. It's just beautiful. I mean, policemen, they must almost say... I can't believe anyone does the wrong thing. I never see it. They're just perfect. (laughs) Always around me. If you've ever ridden a white motorbike, (laughs) everyone goes, oh, it's a policeman. Oh, no, it's not. (laughs) See, God doesn't want us to live like that. He wants you heart and soul. He he wants you aware of his ever-presence but rejoicing in it, longing to live as he would have you live. I think we can learn a lot about how we should live from these few words about these first Christians, these men and women, many of whom knew Jesus in the flesh, many of whom saw the miracles he performed, blind men given back their sight, lame men given back their legs, dead people returned to life, storms who were told to be still, and they were still. Many of whom saw him die on a Roman cross only to rise again three days later. See, these men and women knew who they were dealing with here and they walked with him accordingly. They walked with him in fear. When Jesus said, jump, they said, how high, Lord? We say, maybe. I've got a lot on at the moment. Can Can we maybe look at doing something next week? Or Look, why don't we put it off till next year? Yeah, 2015, Lord, that, that would probably be a better time for me to jump to do what you want me to do. And then at the end of that we say, Lord. Maybe next year, Lord. Not right now, Lord. Remember, it's not his name, it's who he is. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, It multiplied. I want you to notice they didn't only walk in the fear of the Lord. They walked in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. In John's Gospel, chapter 14 to 16, we find this extended sermon by Jesus. Four times he refers to the Holy Spirit. And in fact, Jesus speaks more about the Holy Spirit in these chapters of John's Gospel than is recorded in all the other Gospels combined. Great passage for you to read this week. If you want to be encouraged about how God walks with you by his spirit, read John 14 to 16. Verse 16 of John 14, it says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper 
to be with you forever. The, the Greek word translated helper in English means comforter. You know what? It also means advocate. The Holy Spirit is one who pleads our case with the judge and he comforts us in our distress. In 14.26, he says, But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, get this, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. What a wonderful truth that is. The Holy Spirit, when we walk with him in the fear of the Lord, will teach us all things. And then John 16, 14 says, He will glorify me. Who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will glorify Jesus. But he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And look at this. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that is God's is shared with us. For we are now children of God. And the inheritance that comes to Jesus as the son of David is given to all of us who are in Christ. And it comes to us through the Holy Spirit. And finally, Jesus speaks of the mission of his Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says, but he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. The Holy Spirit is passionate about evangelism. He wants the whole world to know about Jesus. He wants everyone to know about Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. The Holy Spirit wants you and me fulfilling the Great Commission. Go into all the world with the good news. And he will encourage, equip and strengthen you for the task. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplies. You see how we can skim over those words too quickly? We need to hear these words from the Lord. We need to let them change us to make us rethink and reorient our lives as we walk with the King. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What is the it? It is the church, the ecclesia. See, ultimately, this is not talking about individuals, though clearly we each must walk with Jesus personally. It is speaking of the church collectively. As the church walked in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. You know, my, my prayer is that we would indeed walk with him in the appropriate fear and respect. And as we do that, his Holy Spirit would be ministering amongst us, bringing comfort where needed, rebuke as needed, and strength to complete his mission. Let's pray. Lord, may we know your presence with us. And as the ancient Hebrews engraved in the temple above the ark of the Lord, 
know for with us, know before whom you stand. That is our prayer today, Lord, that we would know before whom we stand. And that every step, every word, every breath, every action, every thought, every desire would be shaped by the one who stands before us. The one who's promised never to leave us. The one who sees every action. The one who sees every motive. The one who hears every word. May we know your presence with us. And Lord, I pray that it would fill us with the fitting fear. And Lord, we thank you that balancing that is this wonderful promise that your Holy Spirit lives with us and gently comforts and cares for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.